With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Donald Mazzella, and I am Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. Each hour here at Small Business Digest Radio, we hope to bring you information, strategies, and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. We have an exciting program this week covering onboarding, success factors, and the health of small business leaders. Our first guest is SAP's Adrian Witten, and she talks about onboarding and how important it is, particularly for small enterprises, to ensure long-term success. Adrian, are you there and with us? Thanks for having me. A- Adrian, are you there? Here. Can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. Now I can. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, is onboarding has been an interesting uh, subject of mine. But first, can you tell us what is onboarding? Absolutely. Onboarding is basically the process of bringing new employees into the organization and equipping them as quickly as possible to become effective, productive members of the team and producing, you know, the results the business needs. Why is it so critical? Um, Onboarding is critical because, you know, there's a lot to it. It includes everything from legal and corporate paperwork, which um, companies get in trouble if they don't complete. Right? It includes getting people their laptop, their phone, but it's, there's also a whole softer side of things, is getting people integrated into the business so that they can be productive. Oh, what, what are the trends today in uh, onboarding? There's a couple of trends that we're seeing lately. Um, one of these is to provide better tools for hiring managers for the onboarding process. And the other one is really a, a focus on that soft side I was talking about or sort of the social aspects of onboarding. Um, the hiring manager is really critical, and a lot of uh, historically a lot of people just left the hiring manager to their own devices to kind of figure it out. And uh, the process became pretty inconsistent in terms of some managers were great and some managers weren't. Um, so the new, new trend is really to, to give them a little bit more support. Well, by giving them more, more support, what do you mean? I mean, giving them more tools and more guidance. So one example of one of the things that we've built right into our software is the ability to um, a step-by-step. What exactly do I need to do? You know, I may not, I may not onboard somebody for uh, two more years, and so I can't. Or two years ago was the last time I did it. I may not remember exactly what paperwork to fill out and. Um, what you know? Who do I have to go tell that they need a computer and a phone and and certain software? But um, uh, th- does onboarding include the uh, recruiting process, the identifying of candidates? You know, different people have a different opinion on that. Um, it, it definitely starts with the recruiting process, and the recruiter is the one that's going to you know give the impression of what it's like to work with the company. So ideally, those processes are are very closely tied together. Because what you want is the new hire to, when the recruiter says, you know what, this place is is modern and we have great technology and everybody loves each other here, you want the onboarding process to reflect whatever they told them about working there so that it doesn't become these really disconnected and disjointed um, experiences, right? Well, uh, uh, it's been a long time since I've um, applied for a job and uh, uh, I, I remember uh, uh, the process that, that I went through, but um, what about the human element uh, of this? And uh, we'll, we'll get to, uh, we'll get to the other parts of it. But uh, to me, uh, I, I, I always thought 
the people that wel- welcome someone into an organization are are critical uh, to to making him or her feel welcomed. Um, does this does onboarding using tools sometimes um, uh, uh, create a barrier? You know, no. Good tools absolutely are gonna to improve that and not create a barrier at all. In fact, as I was mentioning, that that's this um, this trend that we're seeing is people are realizing how important that social side of things is, and so they're starting to provide. Uh, collaboration and employee networking software to help expedite the whole process of um, of the socialization. But you're absolutely right. You have to have some sort of a plan in place to start with, or it's going to break down no matter what tools you have. Well, um, uh, uh, a couple of people I've heard in, uh, over the last couple of months have talked about coming into a, uh, an organization and waiting two weeks for a computer. Uh, is this part of what uh, uh, onboarding will eliminate? Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we would call provisioning. And provisioning means uh, getting the person the tools that they need. And generally, that includes a laptop. It might be a cell phone, and it might be the right software on that laptop. It might be a desk. It might be a, a desk phone. Um, different people need different things, but again, we call that all provisioning, and part of the process is, you know what, you have a, a paper, probably not a physical paper, but an online form that the hiring manager would fill out to say, you know, Joe needs a, a laptop, but Mary needs a desktop, you know, whatever. Right. So, yeah, it should eliminate that, not getting that stuff ready in time. Well, let me go sideways for a minute, uh, and uh, there's a trend for bringing your own um, uh, a device to, uh, to uh, corporations, uh, particularly smaller corporations. Um, that whole process of integrating the communications um, is that becoming a problem? Um, and does uh, software like yours and others uh, uh, identify this as a concern? Um, it might, and it might not. Right. So uh, my experience is it depends a lot on the company and uh, their own you know, processes as to whether they're able to handle that well or poorly. Mm. Um, you know, if a lot of companies like our company, right, has essentially embraced the bring your own technology. And so they have a process in place and they're used to it. Um, other companies, you know, maybe they want to have it, make it OK for executives and not other people. So it's going to vary quite a bit. And I think our software, one of the things it's going to do is you may, you may include an employee survey into the um, onboarding process. And that's where you would identify where a person said, these are the things that broke down. I tried to bring my own phone. It didn't work. That's where it would identify something like that is uh, more of a, sort of an after the fact. Before we go on, um, I, I, I jumped right into it. Without, tell us a little bit about yourself. And your, and your company. Sure, absolutely. So I am uh, Adrian Witten, as you mentioned. I'm Director of Product Marketing for Success Factors, which is an SAP company. Um, I've been with Success Factors for about two and a half years, but I've been uh, building marketing uh, talent management or human resources software for about 15 years um, at companies like Taleo, Saba, Hot Jobs, uh, Resumex. Hmm. For the folks that know that, as, and as far as success factors go, we like to say that we provide a blueprint for human resources to drive better business execution through people. Um, but in layman's terms, what we do is we optimize processes like recruiting, onboarding, learning, performance reviews. We also um, provide employee record keeping through the core HR system, and we provide collaboration tools that we were just talking about, as well as analytics about your workforce. What are the challenges of onboarding today? Um, there's a few of them. Uh, one of the challenge, a major challenge for onboarding is really to figure out how to make the process as efficient as possible and still getting people everything they need to um, come up to speed as quickly as possible. Um, so when the process doesn't, when it breaks down, it doesn't go smooth. As you were mentioning, you don't get your laptop. What ends up happening is it takes longer than it should for new hires to be productive. And, in fact, we actually did our own research into what new hires need to, to get productive quickly, and we found that, um, first of all, you have to get past the basics like paperwork. I, if I can't get on payroll, 
I, I'm not even worried about my laptop until I get my family, you know, signed up for benefits, until I know my pay, paycheck's coming through. And then there becomes this process of I need equipment. And then you move into this, I need to connect with people. I need to feel how I fit into the organization. And it's almost like um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're familiar with that yeah. old uh, uh, sociology study. Uh, where people, you have to get through the basics and then you get to this more higher level strategic type of needs for onboarding uh, folks. When you say the basics, you mean needs, wants, et cetera? I do, yeah. I mean, like I said, if you if I'm worried about um, filling out my I-9 form or getting my uh, family signed up for benefits, I'm distracted. I'm probably not going to be producing good work for the company. So you have to get that stuff out of the way. And the way our software works is you can actually get that stuff out of the way before they come to the company, before the first day. And so that's the new best practice is, you know what, don't wait for them to come in and hand them a stack of papers. Put it online and give them access to it um, as soon as you, as soon as they accept the offer. Well, <laughs> companies occasionally extend an offer and um, – uh, do all that, and then the, the employee doesn't show up. Uh, uh, what do you do in a case like that? Yeah, that's a really great question because we get that question a lot, actually, because people worry about what you know. What about all that work I did before they started? So the way we handle that is basically with software security, right? So what we do is we give them access to paperwork, and the employee can fill it out. Um, and, and not, if you don't want them to, they don't have to, but they can fill that out before they ever step foot in the door, And but they haven't got access to all of your secure systems yet. That comes after they actually show up. Now, when people don't show up, we hope that the software, the engaging people before they show up, is going to help reduce at the instance of that happening, if that makes sense. Part of the reason people don't show up is because, you know, the recruiter gave me a great sell job, and then I didn't hear from anybody in that two-week window between hmm. my start date and my offer date. That's a, that's a huge problem for onboarding, too, is just this kind of drop-off of the process. Well, what about, uh, are there generational differences in the handle, handling? Do you handle uh, younger uh, employee, new employees differently than older employees? And uh, managerial levels. I mean, there can yeah, there there can absolutely be differences in perceptions and how people want to be treated and so forth. But I think actually one of the most important things about onboarding is really to try and get some consistency. I think that's kind of your first order of business. Is I don't want one person to have a bad experience and one person to have a really great experience, regardless of generation. I want everybody to have a positive experience. And as long, you know, when you automate things and the process becomes smooth and, and consistent, then I'm not sure that there's a big difference. Now, having said that, you do want to treat your managers uh, might need a different level of handholding, higher or lower than you know than your average line employee. So you can we have different work we call workflows for that where you can handle people differently. They get different paperwork, different training, etc. But but then then there's the question: um, uh, a computer is dumb. It only does what you tell it to do, and everybody's an individual. Right. How do you individualize? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And one of the ways we do that, remember I was talking about hiring manager guidance? Mm -hmm. And some of the best practices, our guidance for the hiring manager is to say, you know what, you're going to first of all hire uh, assign a buddy to that person. And the hiring manager is going to have some idea of who would make a good buddy, right? Is it someone in your team or is it someone on another team? And then the next thing they can do is they can assign, um, here's people that you need to meet. And you can get all this information before you even start, right? You can start to see the pictures of the people that your hiring manager handpicked. So in my case, I work in product marketing. The adjacent group was product management. And so they would have me meeting people on my own team plus people on that team as well. Um, uh, well uh, someone once told me there are 10% of managers are good hires, 80% uh, are adequate hires, and 10% are terrible hires. Um, and uh, meaning uh, they, they just don't know how to hire, recruit, and onboard. 
How do you handle that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I think in his, I find that fascinating because I honestly believe that sometimes when someone looks like a poor hire, it's not the hiring process that was at fault or it's not the hiring manager. A lot of times it's a breakdown in the onboarding process. So as I was saying, you, let's say you did this perfect job of hiring the exact right person and the recruiter hangs up the phone and says, okay, we'll see you in two weeks, and then nothing, right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard this story is, I didn't hear a word, I w and then I got there, and they didn't even know why I was there, right? They didn't have a desk for me, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you, can, you can't, onboarding can't fix a bad hire, but it can definitely reduce the, you know, the, the incidents where you think it's a bad hire, but it was really just a bad onboarding process. So really, when you talk about onboarding, you're talking about uh, making sure that uh, if you've identified a candidate, you, you've put everything in place to uh, ensure that that candidate can, for want of a better thing, hit the bricks running. That's exactly what we say. Yeah, hit the ground running. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's that's one of the big things. What's in it for the company? Well, it's like if you think of a salesperson – if I can get my salespeople um, hitting the ground running, productive, two months faster, means they're closing deals two months sooner. That goes straight to the bottom line. So the, the implications can be huge. And the other side of that coin is um, there are studies, numerous studies, that show that about 80% of people decide whether to stay with a company in the first year. And you know what? A lot of that has to do with the good, good or bad on onboarding experience. So it also hits retention. Um, when you have poor onboarding, you are going to start to lose people that you would have never lost if you had had a smooth, um, organized onboarding process. Uh, um, our, uh, our audience is primarily small business uh, leaders, mm -hmm. people who are running co uh, smaller companies. Um, uh, in many cases, uh, 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 their HR person and I assume that that would be the person in charge, runs, has two, three, four hats. How do you um, get a person in a small company to look at the, uh, to look at the um, uh, 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 onboarding solution in this way? Yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's a few things that you can do that don't, that may or may not even require software, you know, to help you improve your onboarding process. I mean, we absolutely uh, provide software for smaller businesses, so that shouldn't be a barrier at all. Um, but I think, I think a small business has to look at it as important, just like a large business does. Like I said, a small business actually can't afford to lose those critical hires. It's more, it's more critical, right, than it is in a big business where you can absorb those losses better. So, I mean, some good examples, if I was a small business and I had no money at all and I wanted to just look at it and improve it, I think the first thing to do is to survey your new hires. You have to go ask them, you know, what went wrong or you can't fix it, right? So that, that's a really good place to start. And you will find that some of your hiring managers, as just like you said, some are better at hiring than others. Some are better at onboarding than others. And when you find that guy or that gal who does it well, you know what? Figure out what they're doing and get other people to, you know, build it into your process. So you, you can start by just looking at what you're doing and, and seeing if it's working or not. Well, how do you uh, – that's one way of improving the process. What are some of the others? Well, I mean, automation is important. Um, I, I know, of course, I work for a software company, but, but we have found that the only way to build consistency into the process, right, the U.S. government, as an example, is pretty heavy-handed in terms of the legal requirements to bring people on board, the I-9 form, the W-2, um, E-Verify in some states, et cetera. And so it's really hard to keep track of all that stuff without at, at least a minimal level of, of automation. And it's impossible, as I said, to be really consistent, even with your corporate um, signatures that you need, without some level of automation. Uh, so... Uh I've looked at some small businesses' ways of hiring and onboarding, and it's, uh, uh, here's your desk, here's your phone, now start. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's kind of a sink or swim process, we yes. say about that. Uh, yeah, that, that is not what I would call ideal, but as I said, I, I don't think it matters whether you're small or big. Um, I think, it, it, if anything, it's, it's more important in a small company, but big companies have the same challenges. They really do. 
Well, we have about a minute. Uh, how do you measure the success of what you're doing? Well, you know, one of the key ways you can measure success is to look at your retention rates. So there's, you know, studies have shown that um, people with poor onboarding processes are losing far more people in the first year than other companies and far more people in the first year than they are over a longer period of time. So don't just look at your uh, turnover, look at your first year retention rates, you know, and, and then look at, you know, break it down, right? How many people left after three months? And if you've got people leaving after a week or a, or a day, then <laughs> that's a huge red flag. You've definitely got an onboarding problem, if not some other problems, but, you, you know, you, that's a good way. And another way is simply to um, interview hiring managers and new hires and ask them. Um, you know, that's a measurement in itself, but the, the bigger one is probably uh, the harder one is time for productivity. That one's a challenge. But I think looking at retention rates is probably one of the best ways. Uh, how can people reach you and your company? Uh, they can certainly email me. I don't know if they uh, want to write this down. I'm A. Witten or A W H I T T E N at successfactors, all one word, dot com. Um, and they can look at the uh, same thing. Our website is www.successfactors.com, and that'll tell you all about all of our products. Well, I, I, I would like to continue, but um, we'll run out of time, and I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be back uh, in a minute with our next guest. Many small businesses purchase supplies, equipment, other needs through local stores. To save money on many of these purchases, consider Deem.com. This purchasing site offers real bargains and large discounts on many key items needed to run your business, and it's free to join and use. That's D-E-E-M.com. Again, D-E-E-M.com for all your small business needs. Welcome back to Small Business Digest Radio. I am Don Mazzella. Our next book has an exciting. Uh, um, our next book has an. Uh, our next guest has an exciting new book, in which he delves into success factors. We all want to be successful, but sometimes get in the in the way of our own success. Karen Schenk discusses the success factors needed to succeed in an organization, and how employer and employee can benefit. Karen, are you with us today? Yes, I am. Thank you, Don. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. Well, first, um, tell us a little bit about about yourself. Well, by way of background, I grew up in Cincinnati. I got an undergraduate degree in marketing, then moved on and got an MBA at Northwestern. And... And then moved on into an organization designed to Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I worked there for 10 years in corporate, so I kind of know about the corporate world. And uh, after that, joined Ernst & Young in their management consulting practice, and since then, all about 15 years ago or so, started consulting. And I've been partnering with LEI Consulting for about 15 years. No. Well, tell us about your book. Tell us the title and, and uh, how you came to write it. Well, the title is called The Ascending Leader. So uh, the subtitle is Conquer the Seven Enemies of Success. So who we're talking about here is people who are on the rise in organizations, large or small. Uh, small organizations equally benefit. It is helping to cultivate success in a new role. And so we would be talking about not only people at the highest levels, but also those who report on up the chain at various levels, and basically helping them to understand what is it they are up against as they take on a new role and help them navigate and succeed in that new role in the process. Well, um, I found your, your book fascinating and realized I don't do many of the things you suggest <laughs> I do. Uh, um, but uh, uh, our audience is small business leaders. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and the reason I asked you on the program is because I thought a lot of what you 
um, say in your book uh, has applicability. Uh, many of them are the presidents and or owners of the right. business, and uh, they've reached the top, but uh, um, they're there leading, leading a company, and uh, I thought a lot of the, the success factors you mentioned um, they should know about. So could you uh, briefly I, go ahead? I was going to say I agree with you, basically, that people at the heads of organizations are they're the main role models as well. So people are paying attention to them, and they're paying attention to what they do. So I think let's just take some of the initial enemies. For example, the first one is submit to the enemy within. What that means is what are my stress behaviors? And these days, stress behaviors are upon everyone. Certainly anyone in a new role, that is true, but anyone in a leadership role has a lot of pressure. There is a, delivery is expected and results are expected and needed, especially in that small company environment. So we have a tool in the book called the personal leader assessment as an example to say, okay, what stress behaviors might I be demonstrating? For example, oftentimes with stress in an entrepreneurial-type environment, that could be being too aggressive. And by coming on too aggressively, then intimidating those who are in the organization, thereby suppressing the amount of success and open um, engagement that would lead to the kind of success that you want as an organization. So that's just one example of a number of different stress behaviors that a leader can think about and uh, determine how to manage as well. Well, let me um, uh, just ask one before we go on to any other. Um, mm -hmm. I've worked with people who blame uh, leaders who blame everybody but themselves. <laughs> Where would you fit that in, in, in this pattern? Well, I would say that that is one that also ties into, I would say, uh, submit to the enemy within. Now, it takes somebody with some emotional high levels of emotional intelligence to essentially look in the mirror and say, what is it that I am doing that is working, and, and let me be aware of that and definitely leverage those strengths, and what is it that I might be doing that is really getting in my own way. And so it takes, um, I think there are various ways to elicit feedback about that kind of thing, certainly talking with people who you trust, who you would like to uh, listen to and ask for their, their feedback about your own behaviors, certainly paying attention to yourself and also the behaviors that come from the people that you're interacting with and seeing how are my behaviors potentially uh, turning them off or having them not show up as their best selves as well. And it ultimately, that kind of thinking and then adjustment of personal behaviors to the better will certainly contribute ultimately to results, and that's really what we're after. Well, you, br you bring up a point. Uh, uh, talk to people and, and ask. Uh, I've noticed uh, in my my long career that a lot a lot of uh, leaders uh, don't ask other people do it my way and, and or the highway type of thing. Um, how do you get someone to to get them to listen to you? Well, I think it goes with building relationships. And that ties somewhat to your prior guest who was talking about the socialization aspect that is being so more and more recognized in its importance in organizations these days. Uh, an example of what can be done in, in our book as an example, one of the enemies is overlooking stakeholders and peers. Well, for leaders in these positions who are behaving in that way, what many times they haven't done is developed the relationships to a point where there's rapport and trust. And if you don't have rapport and trust as a foundation, then you won't get very far in terms of the interaction and what can be done. You won't, certainly won't maximize 
the outcomes that can come about as a result of stronger relationships. So we've got actually a tool in the book called the Stakeholder Assessment and Strategy Plan so that leaders can sit down, and we work with leaders all the time in this regard, to think about who are the people that are important to my success and how shall I make a plan to help build rapport, connection, and a better relationship and therefore results with those individuals. Well, we used to call it um, building bridges to other uh, uh, groups. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, what I've noticed over the years is there are a lot of people that don't know how to do that. And what is worse, when the people who do know how to do it reach out, the other people aren't reciprocate. How do you handle a situation like that? Well, it is definitely a challenge, and I think, again, it comes back to are you getting the results that you need and want, first of all? If you are, fine. <laughs> uh, if you're not, then it behooves you to look at yourself and say, what is it that I and how can I develop those kinds of skills? Um, it takes a, a kind of leader that has courage, I think, to say, okay, I'm, this does not seem to be working here is how I can improve. Let me look at, A, you know, what can I learn? Uh, who can I emulate? Who is successful this way? Among my colleagues, what do I see that they are doing that are effective, and how can I emulate that? What classes can I go to? Leadership development. Uh, all those kinds of things are avenues for helping to break through that. We're talking with Karen Schenk. Uh, who has a new book out. Uh, again, Karen, the name of your book? The Ascending Leader is what uh, it's called. The Ascending Leader, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I've been uh, asking you questions that's leading, leading uh, going somewhat astray. Can you give us some of the other uh, points that you make in the book that are critical? Yes. Well, I think one of the key things in the book that we say, and this would apply to those people who have started organizations or are heading organizations that also have other leaders within them, and, and countless small businesses have that. And I think one of the things that I think would be compelling for your listeners to be aware of is that about 40% of newly promoted leaders fail within the, eight, the first 18 months. And if that is happening then what we want to do is lower that percentage. And by addressing these enemies and teaching those, man not teaching those managers, but exposing those managers to, or directors or whatever it might be, with, depending on the size of the organization, to identify what these enemies are and to overcome them. Uh, happily, the book has a seven-step approach to that. Each of the seven enemies of success is countered by a strategy for success and then a tool, a specific guide for them to look at how they can be more successful. So uh, I think it's critical for anybody who's leading an organization to be aware of what the fallout can be if we're not addressing these kinds of things. Uh, it kind of ties into what was brought up by the earlier guest as well in terms of that onboarding process, but taking it for you, you talked, in fact, about hitting the ground running, and you mentioned about uh, newly hired managers, about 80% of them are adequate and 10% are not adequate at all. And, and she mentioned how a lot of times it's a bad onboarding process. Well, this guide here, the, the ascending leader has a guide, it's a strategic guide for being successful in those roles. Uh, could you list the seven en enemies? I never uh, let you get past one. Oh, I sure can. <laughs> the first one is submitting to the enemy within, which is our own stress behaviors, and the strategy is to conquer the enemy within. And then the second one, which I'm sure everybody can relate to, yielding to the chaos, which means we are inundated with so much work and there's so much to learn and do. And so the strategy for that is to manage the chaos instead of yielding to it. And the third is to misread the culture cues. So if you're new to a position, 
Uh, this wouldn't be true necessarily of the leader who may have been, you know, the owner, for example, who may have been in that role for a long time. But others who are coming into the organization, they may misread the culture cues and behave as if this is the same kind of culture as where I came from before, and they could shoot themselves in the foot. So uh, enemy number three is misreading the culture cues. The strategy is to master it. And then we've got misfiring with your manager. So whoever it is that you're reporting to, instead of misfiring with them, calibrate with them. Make sure you know what the expectations are. Be clear and set up an operating rhythm to meet regularly and that kind of thing. And then the fifth is overlooking stakeholders and peers, which we've touched on earlier. Instead, connect with them. Sixth is alienating your team, and the strategy is to engage your team instead. Number seven is suboptimizing your vision and plan, and the strategy is to inspire with your vision and plan. That's a mouthful, but there they are. <laughs> well, um, uh, I, I'm sure in your book, um, uh, it becomes very clear, and it's a nice process that I, I enjoyed. But let me ask you, uh, are there different uh, uh, enemies between men and women? Well, that's an interesting question. I would say that generically these, well, in our work, and we've had a lot of experience with this, we came up with these seven enemies and see them among men and women both. Definitely, and each individual may fall prey to a couple here or a couple of there, <laughs> you know. So uh, I wouldn't say that there is specifically one gender or another that goes with one or another. That's a good question, though. <laughs> well, <laughs> I appreciate the question. Well, uh, when an individual is promoted uh, uh, where he or she is managing their former peers, are there any parts of this enemies uh, list that really um, uh, comes to the fore? I would say there definitely is. There, there is one in particular that can be a challenge if they're promoted right among their peers, and it's possible that you alienate your team, and that is definitely devastating for a leader, and definitely for the team members themselves as well. So what we have to do is establish a new relationship and do that in a respectful way. And one of the ways that can help with that is some of the tools that are in the book. We include a team member discussion guide, which gives the leader a chance to look through and see how can I build rapport with these former peers at a new level. So that would be very helpful. And then there's also something called a team assimilation meeting. And there, that shows a process of getting to know that leader in a new way and to, for the team to contribute to what the challenges and issues are at this point that they need to address collectively. There's a saying that uh, most people are, are promoted above the level of their competency. <laughs> the Peter Principle. <laughs> uh, yes. In fact, we have, interestingly, we have, an, uh, one of the things that makes our book, I think, fun and readable is that there is a delightful uh, fable that follows along each chapter and each enemy, and there's somebody named Pete, <laughs> and Pete has been promoted, and he doesn't want to become the infamous Peter Principal in real life. Uh, so that is certainly something that is a possibility, and no doubt it happens. And so a leader wants to be prepared, and this is where this step-by-step approach can really help them to do that and ultimately arrive at an inspiring vision that the team shares and wants to be a part of. Uh, I've noticed in my corporate career that, that when some uh, people have been promoted, there's a certain hubris that goes with it. It can. Mm-hmm. You know, interestingly, we there's an example uh, right now, you may be aware of the J.C. Penney fiasco, and definitely learning the hard way. Ron Johnson was there for just 17 months, and so he was within that 18-month window that we talked about in terms of 40% fail. 
and it's, it seems that he was quite aggressive, came across very strongly. The term hubris has been used <laughs> by others who have written about that whole fiasco, and um, it's a possibility, and, and I think people need to keep their egos in check if they want to truly be successful. Uh, I could go on all night, but but uh, again, uh, Karen, your book, the Ascending Leader. Yeah, yes, the Ascending Leader, and uh, we we have a website, theascendingleader.com, and we also have uh, our own website, which is LEI, which stands for Leadership Acceleration with an EX Acceleration. LEI-Consulting.com is our organizational website for the consulting and executive coaching and leadership development that we do. Uh, we thank you for joining us. and uh, uh, I enjoyed the book, and I hope other people will as, as well. Well, thank you very much. I want to say thank you for myself as well as my co-author and colleague, Diane Egbers. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it. Uh, our next guest brings some very interesting results. And we'll be, we'll be with Lisa Lowe in oh, 30 seconds. But first, a word from our sponsor. Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2hsa.com. That's 2hsa.com. Our next guest brings us news of a survey I personally found to be very thought-provoking. Lisa Lowe, we welcome you to the show because your survey is is the first which really delves into something most small business leaders don't want to think about. Hi, Don. It's uh, great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Lisa, did I pronounce your last name correctly? It's actually Lisa Lau. Lau. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, first, tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization. Okay. Um, I work with Cigna Healthcare, which is one of the um, large insurance companies, as I'm sure you're aware, in, in the U.S. and internationally. Um, the specific area I work in is really geared towards um, selling health insurance to individuals. Um, so it's people who are buying, you know, unlike uh, people who get insurance through employers, um, you know, through your job, these are people who are buying their own insurance. They're the end user. So we call it kind of the individual and family plans business. Um, so they're, you know, obviously self-employed individuals are a big category, um, early retirees who don't yet have Medicare, um, and uh, maybe people who aren't covered with, by their spouse's um, coverage. There's a lot of reasons that people buy individual insurance. And so that's the area of the business that I focus on, um, both doing kind of consumer marketing and acquisition as well as uh, our customer engagement efforts. And your title? Uh, it's Vice President of Consumer Marketing and Engagement. Ah. Uh, uh, now, can you tell us about the, the survey, which which I found fascinating? Yeah, absolutely, and I did as well. The The results were very interesting for us. Um, so one of the things that we know is that, um, number one, you know, self-employed sole proprietors are a large segment of today's workforce, um, and we also knew that um, many of them go without insurance, without health care insurance. And so one of the things we wanted to understand is why does that dynamic happen, particularly when you think about that that group of individuals who, um, you know, not, not all of us really can't afford to be sick, but when you think about somebody who's running their own business and, you know, they are they are the business, um, there's obviously a lot of implications to um, being under the weather or, you know, getting very sick where you can't be running your business day to day. Um, and so we wanted to understand how this group thinks about health insurance um, for those who are uninsured, which is really what this study focused on, um, better understanding, you know, how they think about health, how they think about health insurance, and, um, you know, how they think about those two things impacting their businesses. 
And what did what did you find out? Well, um, you know, we found out about a quarter of the, the um, uh, self-employed business owner who responded didn't have health insurance. Um, the thing that was interesting, I think, is that we found that self-employed um, sole proprietors actually do worry about their health and health insurance. So it was interesting to see such a large percentage not purchasing health insurance, um, but it is something that they think about and worry about. Um, and so we dug into that a little bit to find out, well, why is that? And I think probably not surprising to you or most of the audience, um, you know, a large majority of uninsured uh, respondents to our survey stated that they place business prior or priorities over their per- personal health and overall wellness. Um, which, again, you know, I don't think that's a huge surprise given, um, you know, the responsibility of running your own business. Um, at the same well, time, over a third of the respondents said that if they were away from work for a month due to a personal illness, it could result in them, at a, you know, at best losing customers, at worst going out of business. Um, so, you know, that was kind of interesting to see that, uh, how, you know, how how it wouldn't take much for uh, a sole proprietor or self-employed person to, you know, kind of put their business at risk. Well, that's the, the reason um, I jumped uh, and asked you to join us tonight is because um, uh, I, over the years I've seen um, I've seen evidence of that personal uh, talking research, et cetera. Which kind of pointed that way. You you talk about uh, sole proprietors uh, primarily, but um, I, I also saw that in, in smaller companies, under 50 employees and even under 10 employees. Did you go into any depth on that at all? Um, we didn't because our piece of business really focuses on the individual buyer. We didn't necessarily uh, break out those categories or look at those types of businesses. Although I would suspect, to your point, there'd be some similarities there in terms of how they think about um, health and wellness and, and how health insurance fits into that, I would I would expect that they'd be very similar. Uh, next year, even uh, these proprietors, sole proprietors, will have to buy insurance under Obamacare. Um, did you look at that at all? Uh, well, that is true. They they either need to buy insurance or pay a penalty, um, and so for the self-employed, and that's a little bit, you know, why we found, why we were interested in doing this study and thinking about this, because um, that will be the case uh, once healthcare reform gets fully enacted as of January next year. Um, and so the other thing that comes along with that, you know, there's kind of two aspects to that that I think potentially open up health insurance a bit more to this category. Um, one of them is the fact that this will be what's called guaranteed issue. So um, there's no longer medical underwriting and people cannot be um, denied for pre-existing conditions. So that certainly opens up the health insurance space to many people who before, quite frankly, couldn't get insurance. Um, and the other piece of it is affordability. Um, which is a big element of the Health Care Reform Act. So, uh, you know, based on um, your family size and your income, you may qualify for a subsidy for health insurance. And so the intention, of course, is to make health insurance more affordable for people um, so that they can get coverage. Um, And what was interesting, I don't know if you picked that up in the survey, but one of the things that was very interesting was that even in today's world, we see that the uh, self-employed, when asked about the cost of insurance, um, were actually overestimating. Eighty percent of them overestimated, uh, you know, of uninsured respondents overestimated the cost of health insurance, which I, I found very eye-opening. Um, so even though they worry about health insurance and they know that it's critical uh, to the success of their business, um, a lot of them didn't uh, understand. Uh, what the true cost of buying health insurance was, um, and it's you know it was they were off significantly, so I found that to be a kind of eye-opening piece of the study. Oh, that uh, I, no, I did not pick that up. But uh, getting back before we uh, uh, guaranteed uh, uh, coverage, uh, uh, as someone said to me, you wait till you get sick, then you buy the insurance. Uh, do you think that's going to happen? Well, part of the provision of the Affordable Care Act that is supposed to really, you know, address that is that there will only be um, 
a certain window where you can enroll for insurance. So that won't completely prevent that from happening, but the intent is that you have what they're calling an open enrollment period. Now, for this initial one, it will start in October of this year, uh, and it will actually run through the end of March next year. So there's a six-month enrollment period. Normally what will happen, and this is very similar to how Medicare um, enrollment works, unless you, uh, you know, when you turn 65, obviously you can purchase insurance, but beyond that, there's you have to wait until this open enrollment window to either purchase or change your coverage. And that's very much how this will work for under 65 as well. So after uh, this initial six-month enrollment, it will go to more a three-month enrollment cycle. So in other words, you know, if you get sick in next July and then decide you want to go buy health insurance, you'll actually have to wait until the open enrollment starts in October. Uh, and the only exception to that is life events. So if you get married, divorced, have a child, lose your job. There are other reasons that you can, in fact, purchase insurance during the year. Yeah, well, that's what I was about to say. But, you know, this whole uh, whole issue, uh, I want to I get back because this is a small business uh, program and uh, the people listening in are uh, uh, concerned about that. Um, uh, in your survey, did you find uh, that uh, sole proprietors, et cetera, tended to um, uh, avoid going to the doctor, uh, preferring to work instead? Did you do any research in that area? Well, that was one of the things that came through um, in terms of the fact that, uh, you know, many of our respondents did respond that they put their business and focus on their business um, before their health and wellness. Um, and that was one of the things we were kind of curious to understand because there's kind of two ways to think about health insurance. One, of course, I think this is how many of us think about it, is um, the fact that it's there for very critical illnesses or if you have an accident or, you know, things that can cost a significant amount of money and people want to have that financial protection and that really is important um, and I'll touch on the cost piece a little bit because that was another interesting thing that came out of the survey in terms of how people think about that but the other aspect of health insurance is actually about health and wellness and staying healthy so part of why we were asking about how much they focus on their health and you know we and again we learned that they put their business their focus on their business first um, is that you know being doing things like getting annual checkups, um, you know, doing your annual tests to check things like blood pressure, cholesterol, um, are all very important in order to stay healthy because that's where you can, um, you know, understand if you have some issues um, like a cholesterol issue, right, and then you can address it through uh, your diet, exercise, but being able to go and get those regular checkups um, and Cigna, you know, along with many other insurers, is very focused on health and wellness for that reason because early intervention and getting annual physicals um, is part of what keeps people healthy. So there's kind of this dual aspect to health insurance. It's not just about the catastrophic financial backstop, which is very important, but it's also about maintaining your health and being able to stay healthy so that you don't have to take time away from your business, which I think is critical. Yeah, um uh health um healthy living uh everybody wants to do it but i use the old limelighter line uh, clean mind clean body take your choice um right uh, but anyway um, um what i've seen in talking to small business uh, leaders is um Health health insurance seems to be lowest on their prior one of the lower items on their priority when they go to decide what they're going to pay for, particularly in the first two years. Did you do any um, analysis about how many years the company was in business? Uh, we actually didn't. We didn't ask about that piece of it. Um, but you know, regardless of the age of the company, you know, more than half of people. Uh, 60% as a matter of fact, consider themselves reactive or inactive when it comes to how engaged they are with their health and overall wellness. Um, so, again, we didn't split it out by age of company, but, again, you know, the feeling is these these small business owners are very much focused on, and, and probably I, I would think you're right, especially in those early years, 
uh, getting the business off the ground, making it successful. Um, and it does seem that, you know, based on the, the response that we got, um, that that's not the that's not one of the things they put first. You know, they go to the doctor when they feel sick or they believe something's wrong. Um, and sometimes they very rarely go to the doctor even when they feel sick. Uh, so you know, it is it is a low priority because they're they seem to be putting their business and managing their business first. Um, is this uh, study available for for listeners to look at? Uh, it is. Um, we published it and. Um, I'm actually trying to look at the URL while I'm talking to you. Um, it's the the URL they can go to, the website they can go to is mybizmyhealth, and it's my b i z mybizmyhealth.com. Oh, uh, I'm sure some of our uh, audience will. Um, how do you if if I'm a sole practitioner and um, what would be the minimum uh, health insurance you, your company recommends or you would recommend? Well, you know, it's difficult to answer a question like that without understanding somebody's situation, but what I can tell you is there really is a broad range of products to pick from, everything from things like health savings accounts um, where you can, uh, you know, you can actually put funds towards your health savings account and get some tax benefit from doing that, um, or there are uh, more traditional types of health plans, and they range in everything from, you know, a $1,000 deductible all the way up to a $10,000 deductible, which really at that point, you know, that's kind of catastrophic coverage. It's not really what it's called, but, um, you know, you're paying a $10,000 deductible before your health coverage kicks in. Now, of course, you still get things like um, preventive care, you know, your annual physical. That's all part of your coverage. Um, so there really is a range, and it depends on, uh, you know, how many people you have in your family, do you have children, you know, how do you utilize health care or how don't you utilize health care um, to really kind of understand what the, the value is. What was interesting is that right now the average cost for, you know, just saying a 40-year-old non-smoking male is about $172 a month um, for a for a basically kind of our middle of the road five thousand dollar deductible plan, which is actually uh, quite popular, eighty um, percent of people thought, that, or eighty percent of our respondents, I should say, thought that that product or that plan would be well over two hundred and fifty dollars a month, um, and so that's a very drastic difference uh, in terms of what the actual cost is. So I think there's this perception that uh, it's much more expensive to buy than it than it actually is today. And the other thing that we found is that people also underestimate how expensive health care should be should you need to utilize it. Um, so, for example, one of the things that we asked about was, you know, let's say you broke your arm and you had to get that treated. Not, not any kind of surgical treatment, but, you know, the typical treatment for a broken arm. Um, many of our respondents estimated, about a third of them estimated that that would be less than $1,000. In actuality, the average cost for that is estimated to be about, you know, a little over $6,000. So, you know, there's kind of this dual uh, misperception of how much insurance costs, and then I think there's a bit of a misperception on how expensive health care can be should you actually have to pay out of pocket. So I also found that piece to be pretty interesting in terms of some of the findings we had here. Um, if you, uh, uh, We have just about a, a minute to go. Uh, what did you f find most uh, unusual or most uh, eye-opening from the entire survey? Well, you know, on one hand, I think some of it was very intuitive in terms of things like uh, people, uh, you know, small business owners putting their business first. Um, but I think it was interesting to see the dichotomy of they do do that, but at the same time, they recognize the importance of taking care of something like health insurance and how important it is to them. And they also understand the exposure they have if they're healthy and unable to you know, be there managing a business day. So, again, I don't think anything of it was shocking, but to the degree of you know, how much people worry about it, how much they don't buy it and don't understand the cost of it, I think was a little bit eye-opening to me. Definitely something that's top of mind for people, um, but it, and I'm guessing it's kind of one of those things that you know is hanging over small business owners' heads, and they know it's something they need to deal with, but they've got a lot of other things they need to deal with as well. Uh, thank you, Lisa Lau, 
from Cigna for being with us tonight. Uh, again, your um, uh, website, if they want to see the survey. Uh, yes, it's mybizmyhealth.com. Uh, if they want to contact you directly or your uh, sales team, how do they do it? Uh, they can actually reach me by email. It's just my name, Lisa.Lau, L-O-U-G-H, at Cigna.com. Well, again, thank you for uh, what I think is an illuminating uh, uh, conversation. Thank you, Don, for having me. I appreciate it. Have a nice day. Thank you. Take Remember, this program will be archived and available on www.blogtalkradio.com. Uh, slash Small Business Digest. If you like what you, you hear, let us know. Uh, for for uh, our three guests, thank you. No. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.